0: Taking stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour as we look at some of the business stories happening here in Ireland and further afield. Coming up on today's show, what exactly is going on at the Irish Stock Exchange as some of the biggest companies leave Ireland for the UK and the US? We're going to talk to the man in charge. Daryl Byrne is CEO of Euronext Dublin. He'll be joining me here in studio to explain why some of our biggest companies delisted last year. Later on in the show... It's housing, it's the only game in town. Eva Brennan is the head of research and development at Lisney, and she'll be taking us through their housing and commercial property predictions for 2024. And finally, a pathfinder and a visionary is how he was described this week by those who knew him. We look back at the life and visionary times of Eddie O'Connor, who sadly passed away this week. You can email me at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, I want to start today with the the news that we heard earlier in this week about the sad passing of Eddie O'Connor. He's a former Móna boss who oversaw its complete transformation and then became a pioneer in the renewable energy space. I don't think really that people quite get his contribution to Irish life but I'm pleased to say that Lorcan Allen from the Business Post certainly does and he joins me now to talk about the life and times of Eddie. Lorcan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks Mandy. Now Eddie O'Connor, uh, a lot of us have heard of him in a business sense, but where did he come from? Give us a little bit of his background and his early history.
1: Sure. So Eddie O'Connor, um, he's a Roscommon native, uh, grew up in County Roscommon. Um, he went on to do engineering in college. He went to UCD where he did um, technical engineering and he graduated from UCD. And, um, you know, as an engineer coming out of college uh, in in uh, in his early days, the the main job opportunities would have been in, in the energy companies at the time, and Eddie would have joined ESB out of college, where he started as a graduate engineer and, and learned his trade with that company. Um, and he went on to join uh, to leave the ESB and join the other big energy company in Ireland, of course, which was which was Bord na Móna. And his big breakthrough, I suppose, came when he he took over as chief executive of Bord na Móna um, in the in the mid 1980s, and and the company was in. Dire straits um, at that time. It was it was heavily loss making. It was uh, inefficient uh, and huge problems with staffing uh, issues, um, unions. There was a lot of ag- uh, aggression between unions and management at the time. So Eddie faced a young CEO taking over, which you know no management experience. Really, um, he had a big task ahead of him, and, and he I suppose that was where we first saw the early signs of the entrepreneur Eddie O'Connor when, when he went to work about transforming um, Bordemona. And then he certainly did that uh, over the course of of his time there. He, he totally overhauled Bordemona. He, by the time he finished with the company, it was back to being a profitable company and was doing really interesting things. I read a piece uh, uh, on Eddie O'Connor's life where he hosted an innovation summit led by Bordemona in the Midlands uh, during a time in the early 90s when the Midlands certainly wasn't known for innovation um, or as a hub of innovation. So I, even at those early days, Eddie was was full of ideas and full of visions and what was possible. Um, and, and doing it at a semi-state company, which, mm. you know, semi-state companies not always known for um, that sort of innovation or cutting edge very much. He, he was, He had that sort of entrepreneurial streak in him back then. So that was his early career, um, and of course, anyone who reads back on this, um, his time at Borden Mona, when he had done all of these things and achieved it, you know, making the company profitable again, ended pretty prematurely because um, I suppose he fell foul of uh, maybe some of his, the, the people who were in charge at the time disagreed with Eddie and some of the points he, he was making about the inefficiencies of the state and, and he, he ultimately left his position at Bordemona and went on to, into the private sector. But I think as as many people would say, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to him because he went on to have enormous success from there.
0: It might have been the best thing that ever happened to him, but the worst thing possibly that could have happened to Bordemona. He obviously, as you say, d- derived huge credit from that massive transformation plan uh, that he effected there. But there's some who say that the ending of that relationship um, was actually about him trying to convince and pivot Bordemona towards the renewable sector and that the state um, at that time or the, the organs of the state that he was working for just weren't ready for that at that time. And had they been, maybe we wouldn't be in uh, such a vulnerable position in relation to our own energy now. But for whatever reason, they parted company, might have been the best thing that ever happened to him. Do you think that that though is a fair assessment of maybe why he didn't remain in the, the state sector that they just weren't able to take his vision and, and use it as a pathway?
1: I think that's certainly an element to that, Mandy. I mean, Eddie O'Connor is anyone who knew him, he was interested in, in getting things done, in doing things at speed. Um He wasn't one for bureaucracy um, or or delays or paperwork, and obviously um, the the, the semi state industry doesn't doesn't exactly work with with, with that. Uh, and maybe it probably wasn't it wasn't his natural fit, I suppose. Um, given given what we know, uh, what he went on to achieve, like how he operates, so um, he he was. Uh, I, I think it is a fair assessment. He, he, I mean, he did, as you say, he he did, he he did build one of the first wind farms for Bordemona when he was there very early innovation into renewable energy, but it was very early days. Mm. And the idea of Ireland being a leader in the w- global wind industry, nobody else saw that at the time. Eddie clearly did, but nobody else, I think, in Ireland or even in government were, were thinking about that. Uh, mm. But Eddie clearly saw what was what was possible, which, of course, he, he went on to prove when he founded his first company, his first private company, Electricity.
0: Yeah. And and I think I've always thought about him that he's he obviously... Uh, gets a lot of credit here domestically but he's listened to further afield uh, in a much more <laughs> sincere way so I think he gets a lot of traction in across Europe at the moment for that new project and we'll come to that in a moment but as you say he left Borden he founded Eritricity uh, can you just talk us through the success story that that became?
1: Yeah so um, it was uh, the, the late 90s 1996 I think that, that Eddie first founded um, Airtricity and You know, we see wind farms all across Ireland today, and renewable energy accounts for about 40% of our energy mix in Ireland. But back then, this was a really, really risky gamble to be taking. And Eddie O'Connor very much traded on his reputation and his friendships, I would say, Mm. at those early days in Electricity, He got certain people who believed in him to back him, and he founded Electricity with a bit of funding and a vision. That was literally it. And from there, he went on to build that company and start building renewable energy projects, wind projects, at a time when there was very little, of, there was none of that really in the country uh, at any great scale. And um, But, but uh, as we said, Eddie was a visionary and he saw things, I suppose, before most people saw them. He saw what Ireland could become in terms of uh, the opportunity for wind as a natural resource. Um, and he built a hugely, hugely mm. successful company in electricity, He, you know, the early parts of the company focused on onshore wind. It also built the world's first offshore wind farm off the coast of Wicklow back in 2004. Um, And like here we are 20 years later and the government is talking about offshore wind and the economic opportunity of offshore wind. And we've got these phase one offshore wind projects. Eddie O'Connor built the first offshore wind farm in the world 20 years ago. It's very small scale. It's nine turbines and 25 megawatts, I think. But at the time, that was really, really groundbreaking stuff, uh, and it almost shows how, like, this, again, the state wasn't ready to move mm. at that pace that they do. Was the 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 whole system stopped from there, and there hasn't been an offshore wind farm built, uh, and won't be until the, the first ones go live, maybe in twenty thirty, uh, in the coming years. So yeah. that shows yeah. how far ahead he operated. Um, but yes, our electricity overall a hugely successful company, and by the time. Eddie and his investors cashed out on electricity was sold as part of a a mega deal which valued at over €1 billion in 2006. It was, you know he made, he had made a lot of people very very wealthy including himself it hmm. must be said he took about 45 million euros out of that that deal so it was what it was it was a huge success story for him and his early investors
0: yeah and you'd probably expect with you know his earnings out of that that um he'd completed his career he was happy with life i don't think he was necessarily um a man who uh was driven by the money because if he was he could have you know sloped off into retirement and and been happy with what he got out of the electricity deal but having one success story was enough he then went on to an even bigger success story
1: Yeah I I, I agree with you I don't think money was what drove Eddie O'Connor at all Um, I mean he became by the end of his life he was worth some people estimate over half a billion euros Um, he was that wealthy but it wasn't his motivator what motivated him was Doing things, change, innovation, developing new projects, and um, yeah. So after after electricity, the 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 money that he took out of that, he actually invested a huge chunk of it into a a new company called Mainstream Renewables, which was taking his concept of renewable energy that he had he had started with electricity, but bringing it to a new scale and and a global scale as well, um, and Mainstream. Uh, is a company that has an international focus and was doing really big projects in solar, in wind, uh, in South America, in North America, uh, in, in parts of Asia, and Europe. And um, again, from nothing, him and his backers, uh, and of course he had more backers at this point because they'd seen what... Uh, the success what of, of see, it. The success yeah. and what he could achieve. It was easier to attract investors and capital, I'm sure. But again, he, he, he delivered uh, and built another phenomenally successful company. Um, at great scale and by the time uh, mainstream then was sold only a couple of years ago uh, a Norwegian firm came in and bought a majority stake again at over a billion euros so uh, for one person to achieve a a company uh, with over a billion euros in sales once in their lifetime but to do it twice is is very significant so um, you know it just showed how how you know, a serial entrepreneur, I think, is is the term.
0: And and still, his driving factor was to progress renewables, not content with staying here in Ireland or even focusing on renewables themselves. He then developed a project called Supernode, which was about a grid, which was to kind of an even bigger scale. Maybe talk us through um, the idea around that and the status that it's at now.
1: Yeah, well. Um I mean, anybody who works in the renewable energy sector uh, will will know that renewable energy is, is, is quite different to, uh, you know, a typical fossil fuel plant, which just burns um, a fossil fuel whenever you need it. Uh, whereas fossil or en- renewable energy is quite intermittent. The grid has to be far more flexible to, you know, have multiple different sources of electricity coming in on and off, be it solar during the day, then wind when it's windy, uh, and probably battery storage and hydrogen when, when uh, in, in future years, um, and, and Eddie could see the constraints to the renewable growth of renewables in many countries across Europe was was grid and the flexibility of grid. So by the time he'd sold a mainstream, his his new vision, his new project was a grid, a super grid as he called it, across Europe that would allow the sort of flexibility um, across the entire continent of a, 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 an enormous supercharged highway, uh, electrical highway, to move electricity from one side of it to the other uh, as renewables uh, clicked in and out of, of action. So you could have uh, solar energy coming from Spain and Italy uh, and then during the winter you could have from the northern side of, of Europe the wind um, during times uh, when there's less sunshine in the south. And his whole idea was to build this interconnected super grid across Europe um, I, I think you know. People have talked about the, you know the legacy of Eddie O'Connor. I think in time, if this project Supernode achieves what I think Eddie and his colleagues believe it will achieve, that that may be his greatest legacy mm. if, if that project ever does deliver. Because it is it is of a scale and of an ambition that even by the other companies of electricity and mainstream it is exceptionally high. And um, it, it's still in its early days, but it's it's growing at pace. And 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 it's you know the people that are there are passionate about it and Eddie up to his last days I was um his last week of his life he was still working still mm. working on the project and um it'll be interesting and exciting to watch uh, how Supernode's gets on over the coming years because I suspect, as I said, I think if Eddie could have one wish, that may be his legacy that he would like to leave behind.
0: Right, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the scale of this is incredible. It is about dispatchable energy. That's energy you can store and use and it's not something that has been attacked or approached at that scale at all, which is, I suppose, a measure of the man himself. Just moving away from the business side, finally, Lorcan, um, on this, um I know he's somebody, I never met him myself, I don't know if you have, but I know he's somebody who cared deeply about soccer and he was particularly interested in the social aspect and the contribution that it could make to helping society in a way that maybe has been forgotten. Did you come across that side of him?
1: Uh, I, I've, I've met Eddie a couple of times. It was not something I discussed with him uh, at length, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. He he always thought very differently than other people. Mm. Um, I, I mean, he's had controversies in his career as well, uh, and he's he's certainly not. Um, he, he's had run-ins with plenty of people over his time, but he was somebody who thought deeply about. and and how we can improve things and everything. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that side of him thinking sort of very differently about how things that unite people and and, and what gets them to, um, I suppose, connect and collaborate as a society.
0: Mm. Well, look, he was obviously a very special type of genius and uh, it's been a pleasure going through the history of his career with you, Lorcan. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was Lorcan Allen of The Business Post. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Now, 2024 is going to be a crucial year for the housing market, politically speaking anyway. But if you're in the market to buy or sell a property, then stay tuned. Listenies are one of the largest property agents and they'll be joining me after the break with their predictions and advice for house hunting in 2024. Stay tuned. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, high interest rates along with changing occupier trends and the associated costs with implementing things like sustainability will mean a lot of things in the property sector are going to change in 2024. And there's a new report this week. It's out by Lisney and joining me to discuss it now is Eva Brennan. She's head of the research department at Lisney. Eva, thank you very much for coming into us today. Thanks, Mandy. Now, everyone has an interest in property somewhere along the line. So I actually wanted to start off today with the commercial side of things and we'll get to the residential then afterwards. It might be worth looking back at 2023 before we go into your predictions for what's going to happen next and look at what are the key things that maybe impacted the commercial side of the house in 2023.
2: Well, I guess, look, every part of the commercial market operates differently. But um, I suppose what we've seen across the board is, as you say, interest rates affecting the market since mid-2022. So that certainly continued last year and will continue again for much of this year. And I guess it depends really on how interest rates evolve um, you know if they come back too quickly you know that can signify more underlying issues with the economy but I suppose you want a slow steady decline so that will certainly help the market this year and it will be a, a hopefully a changing trend but you know property is a lot more nuanced than that yeah. there's so many parts particularly commercial property and as you mentioned there you know sustainability is a big issue now and, and not issue you know this is something that we need to address and need to look at but there are so many directives there from the EU and, uh, you know, domestically as well that we, you know, there will be changes in property and, you know, how we occupy, how we build, how we finance. And, you know, that will have an impact on values.
0: And even when you look at sustainability from a cost point of view in terms of the, you know, the after- operational costs yes. it's something that feeds into residential as well mm-hmm. we're all much more acutely aware of the cost of energy now yeah. so that's why things like bear ratings are, are an important part of buying your own home yes. but I guess in the commercial sector this is even a bigger thing
2: Yeah you know investors now ask about BERs uh, if you went back 18 months ago or 24 months ago this wasn't something that was ever asked us was in the same in, in residential so you know th- there is that focus on B3 and better yeah. and it's really for a lot of the larger investors um, and, and buyers of buildings that they actually won't be able to finance it unless, mm. uh, uh, unless it has that higher BER. And then, you know, if it, it's lower, you have to factor in the cost, cost of bringing it up.
0: After, yeah, and then afterwards, yeah, that and you're maybe paying you say, more you know, energy. With
2: heat pumps and the, the mechanical and electrical. And, you know, that could change, you know, how leases operate. So what we have, it's called full repairing and insuring leases where tenants are responsible. But there might be more of a case now that tenants won't want to be responsible for that really mm. you know high cost m but it, look I suppose all of this we, we we live in we're living in a climate crisis you know last year was the hottest year ever um, so this is something we have to do but it's the cost of getting there you know up to 2030 and then to 2050
0: Absolutely because big big targets on our back as well Yeah Um so when you're looking at some in the commercial space say something like offices um, let's talk about that and, and what effect it has had since the aftermath of COVID and the return to offices. Do you think that um, we've bottomed out now and that basically the hybrid working is here to stay um, and that there are going to be no more seismic shifts or do you think that there's still a way to go on that in terms of offloading commercial space?
2: Yeah, look, I suppose there are are different factors there. So in terms of the hybrid working, that's here to stay. Gone are the days of five days in the office. But I do think that, you know, there are a lot of employers who want actual some contact. So I I, I personally, I think that kind of three day a week in the office, two day at home, two, three, one way or the other Mm. is here. So that does certainly change occupier requirements Requirements And the amount of office space that we actually need. Um, but in terms of, I suppose, the, the sustainability point of view, there are large occupiers who have their own ESG promises. So if you're a big international tech company, you know, there's a lot of moral obligations to your staff and your customers. So they will only want top quality buildings.
0: Yeah, and it's all a cycle then, isn't it? Because success breeds success. Yeah. Um, just, you, you mentioned evolutions in building occupancy. What does that mean? It
2: well, uh, just means uh, that. It, 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 yes, it just really means that instead of the five day a week, nine to five thirty, We're still a figuring that out. hybrid okay. now.
0: All right. yeah. One other thing before we leave the commercial side of stuff, um, I wanted to ask you about the investment landscape. How did that perform in the commercial sector?
2: Yeah, look, I I suppose the the word you use is subdued really uh, last year. So, um, you know, investment continued to perform well over COVID, which we were probably a little bit surprised. Yeah. And the the commercial market in general performed well. Um, Then mid 2022, the, the interest rates really started to hit, but not just the interest rates. It was that that changing environment around sustainability as well and then in the office market just the shifts in how, how people are there. So it was a quieter year but still there was almost 2 billion in turnover done. You know there are years going back where we were up at 6, six and a half, seven, and I, I hate going back to 2006, 2007 but I do think it gives a good context you know when that was the height of our Celtic Tiger we were doing 3 billion so we're not that far no, we're behind enough. Yeah. Even that. Even though
0: that's subdued that's not far away from exactly. what would have been the um, peak. Yeah. So what are you think for 2024 is there anything we should look out for in the commercial sector in particular yeah
2: look I think values are going to come back a bit more so if you look at the MSCI index which is a, an international index that tracks values we're back about 25% now and that's really since 2019 depending on sector but I think we have a little bit more to go and even you see some deals in the paper in the the last few days around prices versus asking prices so there is uh, you know vendors expectations and what purchasers and their credit committees are willing to pay there is that gap and that needs to to, to come closer And, I and think, you think
0: it will in 2024? I think it will
2: well it'll have to to get activity happening um, I think unlike the past that took years to happen I think it's happening very quickly now and I do think once the market comes back it comes back well but you know the costs of future works and all of that need to be priced
0: in And what about the notion that is often articulated by some political parties that we can just convert a lot of this office space as sitting around and willing to be occupied into domestic dwellings where do you sit on that?
2: Look some will be suitable some won't and I think you see that internationally you know London and the UK generally in the US I suppose the problem with a lot of office buildings is they're quite large floor plates with a core in the centre so they and you know when they're wide and long you don't have a lot of natural light so it is difficult to do but I think certain buildings will and Mm. maybe some of the suburban buildings will be suitable for that you know it could be suitable for for other uses um, as well Uh, you know hotels um, that type
0: of thing. Yeah, some, somebody told me that it's not just as simple as we think it will be in some respects you'd be better off knocking the building down and starting again for a residential one if that's what you wanted to do.
2: Exactly and I suppose there are issues around that now you know when you want to knock down a building you have to have a, a demolition justification report because there's so much embodied carbon in it so it's not it's Straight not the simple forward.
0: thing. It's not the yep. government just can't take over a load of offices and change them into yeah. apartments. I get it. Um, if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to Newstalks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm speaking with Eva Brennan, who's Head of Research and Development at Lisney. And we're talking about a report that came out this week from Lisney on the property sector. Now, turning to the residential um, uh, sector, it's not just a, a massive consumer story. It's a huge business story. It's a big political story. It's going to be even bigger in 2024 because it's so politically challenging yep. and, and charged. And, um So again, I wanted to look at the impacts that you felt were important in in 2023 for that, presumably interest rates are a massive part of that as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Look, uh, I guess to give some context leading up to to last year and and this year, you know, during COVID, there was a lot of additional savings coming out of COVID and into 2021, early 2022, a lot of that saving was being spent and, uh, you know, created significant demand for residential. And then I guess when the interest rates started to increase mid-2022, 2022, that kind of frenzied nature came back a little bit and it was what one of my colleagues called a power share between sellers and buyers and um, I guess this year it, it has become a little bit more flat that you know affordability for a lot of people um, particularly in kind of the mid to lower end of the market with interest rates has been affected so that demand has been affected um, at the upper end of the market it's mainly cash purchasers still um, so interest rates are of less significance but I guess guess, again, with interest rates, it depends on how it signifies what's happening in the rest of the the economy. So, you know, it affects so, it. So there.
0: if you're not depending on a mortgage and getting a mortgage, you're waiting to see if that interest rate increase would at least bottom out and stop so you're more sure of your way forward.
2: E- exactly. And I suppose, look, the, the biggest issue in the residential market, as we all know, is supply mm. and that chronic lack of supply. So not alone, just the fact that we don't have enough houses in the country, uh, it's that uh, people aren't putting their homes up for mm. sale at the moment and there's lots of reasons you know around that. Um
0: Do you think if on the supply side that I mean we know we hear the statistics from politicians all yeah. the time and it's literally like you know spaghetti junction when it comes to figuring out the figures but do you think that the supply is increasing and do you think it will increase further in 2024? Do you see more building on the residential side coming through?
2: Yeah in terms of new homes I do. I think you know the housing for all it, it, in fairness to the government it, in generally speaking it was a decent plan um, I think it is starting to feed through and there are other measures there like the temporary waiver on uh, section 48 development levies certainly helped with uh, commencement notices last year they were at about 33,000 which is the highest in 16 years
0: What about <laughs> so when you it's... hear from property developers though that they, they can't get through the system fast enough yeah. and they can't get access to finance now are you hearing that more?
2: Yeah look there are 30 30,000 units stuck in on board Panola there's another 30,000 stuck in judicial reviews so you know it, it's difficult um, but we it is starting to improve now where we are at the moment is where we should have been a decade ago but mm. look we is, are where we are, we're, as yeah, they say. We're, yeah. we're we're moving forward, but you know there are those difficulties there. There are those delays. If you're a developer and you're buying a piece of land, you know in the past you would have assumed you might be on site within twelve months or eighteen months. Now, you know you're factoring into the into your costs and how much you're paying for sites and all of that. The you know the cost of holding that site maybe for six seven years as you get through planning, as you get through uh, on board Panola and then judicial review. So it, it's
0: expensive to hold and then you have other um, levies and I suppose when I'm in. trying to get it like just to give a bit of hope to people yeah. do you see things getting better is, in 2024 yeah. and what about for the individual okay so if I'm sitting here across from you and I'm trying to get on the ladder and buy my first house and mm-hmm. I got my deposit that I saved up in Covid my parents want me out uh, they want me to start my life uh, and I've got my partner and we've got a good wage what is the advice you'd give to people now because you hear these stories that and it's actually in your report as well that very often when people go, they view the house they want to buy the house and they're absolutely terrified to make offers because they don't want to be used as the floor for which a bidding war starts. So can you give people any advice as to what they should do?
2: Yeah, look, I suppose it is to have your your savings if you're a first-time buyer. Personally, I think focusing on the new homes market is the place to focus and 60% of the new homes market are first-time
0: buyers because... Why is that? Why do you think that's better?
2: Because when you're you're a first-time buyer, uh, you have the benefit of the help to buy scheme. You also have the first home shared equity scheme, which I think a lot of people don't know about. And you know, if you're a first-time buyer, you can uh, get the government to basically take 30% equity in your house. So you're you're only buying 70 uh, Is that only on,
0: on new homes? It is only yeah.
2: on new homes, yeah. And I think that's probably good for now, maybe in the future, to put on second-hand homes. But I think it would just create even more demand for second-hand homes, which would only push up prices yeah. even more. So, you know, if you are that first-time buyer, those two Uh, those two government schemes are good you also because new homes are A2 or better you are going to get a green mortgage which could be you know a hundred euro a month cheaper um, and if you're a first-time buyer as well, you will have four times your, your income. So there there are positives there. Um, you know, there will be hopefully some improvements over this year and into next year and the year after. Um, but as I said, where we are at the moment is where we should have been 10 years ago. But, you know, I think it's more positive now than it would have been two years ago.
0: Well, look, we'll take the positives where we can find them and and end on that positive <laughs> note. But Aoife, thank you very much for coming in to us today. That was Aoife Brennan, Head of Research and Development at listening.
2: Thanks, Mandy. Thank you.
0: This is Newstalks Taking Stock and after the break we'll be talking about a crucial year ahead for the Irish Stock Exchange and I'll be joined in studio by its CEO Daryl Byrne after this short break. Now, you're welcome back to Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. And for our final item today, it's been a difficult couple of years for the Irish Stock Exchange, but many of the Irish companies, the big ones that we know, are choosing to delist from the Irish Stock Exchange and move to much bigger markets in the US and the UK. That's due in part to what my next guest calls an unlevel playing field. I'm joined now by Daryl Byrne, who is CEO of Euronext, Daryl. You're very welcome to Talk. Thank you, Mandy. Now, before we get stuck into what's happening, the whys and wherefores um, of the Irish Stock Exchange, you might just explain to us about Euronext, because the
3: configuration of the Irish Stock Exchange changed over the last couple of years. Yes, Okay. So Euronext, it's a pan-European market infrastructure. So we're made up of seven exchanges, four central securities depositories and one clearinghouse. And that's, you know, as a group, we have grown significantly since the Irish Stock Exchange joined in March of 2018. Um, after the R Exchange joined, then we had the Oslo Exchange joined a year later, and more recently, Borsa Italiana, which is a real game changer for us in terms of diversifying the business and really scaling up our business. So our business is across seven markets in Europe and then we have some ancillary businesses um, elsewhere as well.
0: And in that configuration of European exchanges, um, what about self-determination from individual countries? Um, Are um, individual ministries, individual governments allowed to change their own rates on tax and things like stamp duty?
3: Um, yes, yeah, so it, absolutely. I mean, tax is separate. So we have within the Euronext group, I mean, we operate as one company. But we operate in seven markets, so we keep a close connection to the local markets and to our local regulator and to the finance ministry. So something like tax and stamp duty is a local matter. So it's, it's for the Irish government here. Right. So,
0: so just like our own personal taxation, yeah. you know, it's not determined by any euro group, but we're part of a bigger grouping. Yes. So, Daryl, when you look at the Irish Stock Exchange now in 2024, um, what is your ambition for it? Like, what would you like to see it be?
3: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, we have, I suppose we're in a fortunate position being part of Euronext. though we're part of something much bigger at a European level. And, you know, as I mentioned, a company that's grown significantly. When you look at the Irish Stock Exchange or Euronext Dublin, there we're the number one Um, exchange globally for listing, debt and investment funds. And sometimes that's something that's not very well known in in the local market. When you talk about the Irish Stock Exchange in Ireland, people tend to think of the equity markets, but you say that outside of Ireland, and it's very much around our global um, debt and funds listing business. So even to to look at that aspect of our business over the past past year, um, we've really expanded and grown that business and we've become the number one exchange globally as well for listing ESG bonds, and um, which is, you know, a, a very significant huge, value, particularly yep. given the focus on sustainable finance and, and companies using the markets to fund their growth in a sustainable way.
0: Now, you say that and that's all very positive, but, you know, we've seen over the last 12 months in particular, a lot of the big names that I mentioned earlier, like CRH and I think Flutter and Smurfit Kappa or another one leaving or already have left the Irish Stock Exchange. So maybe talk me through what that how that situation arises because you know I, I i know stamp duty is an issue but that's not the only issue but when you look up across those european countries
3: who is in that grouping with us what are their stamp duty rates like compared to ours yeah well i mean specifically on the stamp duty um ireland's in a somewhat unique position because we have one percent stamp duty on trading in irish shares and um, when you look across other Euronex locations, um, some some uh, jurisdictions don't have any stamp duty and others, it's a much smaller percentage, so it could be 0.1%. And even if you look across the UK, because of our, our former close alignment with the UK, stamp duty is there, is half a percent. So we're a complete outlier in terms of the stamp duty rate that applies. So that's why we've been we've been lobbying very hard for, I suppose, in, in the first instance, a complete and utter, Abolition of stamp duty because we think it, com- it creates an unlevel playing field and it puts trading in Irish shares at a competitive disadvantage um, to other European markets as well.
0: And how significant is that in someone like CRH or a company as big as that making their decision? Do you think
3: it's it's a factor? Um, and and but I mean I suppose if you take a little step back from that, I mean you know we've had we have companies like CRH and Flutter that have grown for many decades successfully um on the irish stock exchange and have accessed the capital markets very successfully and got access to european investors particularly um since we joined uh the Euronext group um so you know so so stamp duty is a factor but i mean the, the decisions behind companies deciding to um to seek listings in u.s markets are, are you know business and strategy driven decisions mm. um stamp duty isn't a determining factor but i think where the issue has arisen is that um, we have a market specifically designed to facilitate companies that want, the Irish companies that want to list in the US, but also take a listing on their home market. And because of stamp duty, we have this situation where if you're an Irish company, you want to list in the US, any trading that takes place in the US, um, you're given an exemption from stamp duty um, by, the, by the authorities here. But if you trade those same shares in your home market, one percent stamp duty applies, so that's just an untenable situation.
0: So what, so, what do you want to see happen in that regard? Some kind of credit for companies who may be listing in both jurisdictions.
3: Yeah. So, so what what we did during the summer was we, I mean, we um, we had that with the Atlantic Securities Market when we first launched it ten years ago. There was a stamp duty exemption was given to us from the revenue commissioners so I suppose in light of some of the the plumbing that had changed on the post trade side and um, we thought it was prudent to go back to the revenue commissioners and seek um, uh, a reconfirmation of that stamp duty position hmm. so we did that and I suppose to cut a long story short the the end game was that the revenue commissioners refused to give the, that stamp duty exemption um, on the basis that um, from their perspective under the legislation both trading and settlement of shares needs to take place in the US. Now um, we wouldn't uh, agree with that position but that, that was the ultimate determination. So in the absence of that um, we then uh, sought uh, the Department of Finance to introduce a stamp duty exemption through the finance bill. And, uh, and that was something that didn't happen as well which was very disappointing.
0: Didn't happen for 2023, but presumably you're hopeful that it's something they might consider in the future.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there. So there's two elements. So one is the, the specific situation for the Atlantic securities market to cater for Irish companies that want to list in the US, but that they could also have a listing in their home market. But I think there's a broader issue um, in terms of the complete abolition of stamp duty for, for all companies. Well,
0: to be fair to the government as well, like their their responsibility is to um, tax these companies who are making huge amounts of profit. So like, how, what percentage of the, the Irish stock market do these large companies equate to and how much revenue would that have drawn down, say, maybe in 2022?
3: I mean, in terms of, so if you look at uh, CRH as an example, I mean, that it was our largest company and around 30% of trading volume. So very significant. And then there was obviously a tax take um, for the exchequer in relation to, uh, to that as well. So, mm. so, it, so if the, the
0: government were contemplating, say reducing or eliminating stamp duty um entirely, say, they'd have to take that into consideration for the entire
3: tax base. What what could they lose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we estimate somewhere in the region of around three hundred million. That's that's not insignificant. So it's, no, it's absolutely it's significant. But on the on the flip side, um, you know. I suppose it's one of the measures that would uh, help reinvigorate Irish equity capital markets Um, and, you know, by then attracting more companies to the market um, and then, you know, increasing the trading volumes. uh, You know, it's got a knock-on effect.
0: And you mentioned there the the capital markets. I mean, presumably all of this has a knock-on effect on the capital markets industry here in Ireland. Are you seeing or what type of professions are affected by that?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, when you look at our equity capital markets, so there's... You know, there's a whole ecosystem that supports that. So you've got the brokers and um, you've got the law firms, the accounting firms, PR firms. So, you know, if you've got a market that has contracted through the loss of some of the larger companies, that has a knock on impact. And, and that's why we're doing a lot of work at the moment, particularly in light of the report that was published um, at the last year. About reinvigorating Irish equity capital markets, working with the ecosystem to take the recommendations that were in that report, and we have uh, set up three working groups to take each of the recommendations, and that they're that's made up from different parts of the ecosystem, and um, to really. Uh, develop those uh, those recommendations into firm proposals that we can put to government um, and can be implemented.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and here with me in studio is Daryl Byrne, who's CEO of Euronext Dublin, and we're talking about the developments at the Irish Stock Exchange. Yeah, let's look at the flip side of it for the minute because it isn't all about taxation. It's, it's, it's not all about even that one singular part of the government's mix. What other countries do this well in terms of government partnerships with exchanges?
3: Yeah, I suppose we're in a lucky position being part of Euronext, that we see what works well across other locations. So I think, you know, one of the examples that we cite quite regularly, but it's because it has been very impactful, um, is the market in Norway. So the Oslo exchange. And there, um, when you look at, you know, what they have um, in the in the broader capital market space compared to what we have in Ireland. So, and um, First of all, they've got you know an active base of brokers and banks that are working with companies to bring them to the market. They also have very good taxation policy, and that's hugely important, isn't it? That flow because you've got to be thinking about what's the next
0: IPO, where's the next listing come. That brings a new dynamic, I Absolutely. guess. Absolutely.
3: I mean, we've we've got as a, as a, an industry, we've got to work with companies at a much earlier stage to put IPO. On the table as an option, it's not going to be suitable for all companies, um, but it needs to be an option that's you know that's in people's minds at a much earlier stage. And I think that's something that you know at Euronex we've been trying to uh, promote for the last number of years. But I think there's you know there's a broader responsibility on the whole ecosystem here to to do that as well.
0: What is it? Is there something in our psyche that prevents us from doing that final push, or is there something unique to Irish businesses that prevents them taking that final hurdle? Or do you know of, could you be confident that there's a stream of things coming forward for 2024 or 2025?
3: Um, I, I think there's a mix of factors, but, you know, sometimes it's in the, in the psyche of the companies that, you know, IPO just isn't in there. As in the thought, we think about bank finance or we think about venture capital or private equity, but IPO doesn't come into the mix. So we need to change that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, so that's one factor. And then I think as well, you know, um, as companies are scaling up, you know, we really need to be putting um, IPO as an option on because, you know, we've shown successfully that companies that have joined the market, um, you know, once they've joined and they've done their fundraising, their ability to go back and tap the market at a later date Mm. and very quickly
0: (laughs) And is that something from your next point of view that you help people with? Do you train people to do that? I was reading an interview a couple of months ago back with uh, Marco Dwyer of Red Cloud and he had gone through your programme was uh, effusive in his praise for it. But like, is it an ongoing relationship with the people once they start the IPO?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, we have we have got our IPO ready program, which is, despite the name, it's about strategic financing. So, um, you know, so it introduces companies to a whole range of different financing options. And of course, IPO is in there as well. Um, so we work we work very closely with the companies as they go through the program, but then we've set up an alumni um, as well. So we stay in close contact with the companies once they've gone through the program. And I think what's nice as well is that Enterprise Ireland and ISAF are partners on the program as well. So, you know, so I suppose we're working closely with them because we want, as I was saying earlier, we want to identify companies at a much earlier stage and kind of work with them as they as they scale up and they grow mm. and then have IPOs as an option for them.
0: You mentioned earlier um, our relationship with the UK. What has Brexit done to the Irish Stock Exchange or how has it affected things for you?
3: So um, a, a few things. So I think, I mean, first of all, um, you know, we relied in terms of the infrastructure that's in place. So trading takes place in Euronext, but settlement took place historically um, on on a system in the UK called Crest. And because of Brexit, we could no longer use the UK system. So we had to migrate... An
0: electronic system,
3: is it's it? an electronic Okay, that just lives system. in London or yes, someplace. exactly? exactly. Yeah. Um, so we had to migrate the market to a European system. So we did that in 2021. Um, so th- so, and that was done successfully, but it was a very heavy lifting project for the whole market. Um, but we got there in the end. I think the second thing is, though, that I suppose historically, companies have... Their default has been to list in Dublin and also list in London as well. And in a post-Brexit world, I think that's broken. Hmm. And now that we're part of Euronext, what we've done is we have, I suppose our model has shifted towards a European model. So our rules are now more aligned with the European model. And, you know, from our perspective, um, an Irish company that wants to list and raise capital Can do so on its home market because it gets access through Euronext to European investors and it doesn't need to go down that due listing path. Some companies will want to do that and we can facilitate it but for other companies you know we're absolutely confident and we we have cases to prove it that you know a smaller Irish company um, can access capital through its home market through a solo listing on Euronext or multiple Euronext markets.
0: Just to be devil's advocate again but if they're getting better conditions and maybe even the regulatory systems are easier in other jurisdictions, you can understand why other areas in that mix might be more appealing to them.
3: Yeah, I I think there's a number of factors that companies need to consider. So, you know, and and where they list is one thing. But I think, you know, we have, I think now that we've joined Euronext and particularly because Euronext is the number one exchange in Europe for listing European companies and we've got a particular speciality in SMEs and tech companies. I think that's another factor as well. that, Whereas previously, Um, in Ireland, you, you know, I suppose when we looked at companies, companies needed to be of a certain size or the view was, you know, you need to be somewhere north of 500 million to list on a stock exchange. In the Euronext world, that's completely different. Euronext lists a lot of companies, you know, that have market caps you know, in or around 50 million or less than 50 million. Yeah, so.
0: big, a big difference and yeah. a big jump there. Well, uh, Daryl, it's a fascinating time for you. And um, look, uh, I think it's a very important historically, it's very important for the country that that we have uh, an exchange and that that continues. So we wish you well with your endeavours. That was Daryl Byrne, CEO of Euronext. Thank you very much for coming in to me.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo de Silva-Scott on sound. If you have any comments on today's items, you can always email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. Up next, it's Anton with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.